Human uh, languages, oh Gail, I'm a little too high now, it's probably because you turned that gain up, I think just a hair off, I think in-house or, or uh, yeah, and uh, you check the level on the computer if that's okay too, first. but that sounds pretty good. Um, human languages, they consist of two parts. Uh, first is the uh, lexicon of words. Really, it's a fancy way of saying dictionary. And uh, lexicon is the catalog of words that that language uses. And for <laughs> Greek, this is probably about the best one out there, is this guy, which is the Greek and English lexicon of the New Testament. And uh, this is the one that I use quite often. So, but this, this isn't every Greek word. This is just biblical. So it would probably be about this big for the, if it were had that font. Uh, so that's, you know, what do these words mean? And that's important. And, of course, my English, I, my, uh, English dictionary, I use Webster's, but I use that on my computer. Uh, and so we have the, the definition of words. The second part of a language is the grammar. The rules of grammar... Uh, which allows the combination of the words in the lexicon to combine to make sentences that convey thought. So, and that's this book for Greek. This is the rules of Greek uh, language or Greek syntax and grammar. And so, you know, that has to be known. And for English, same thing. So, if, if we don't have these rules, uh, and this, this I have to go through like a hundred times. <laughs> it's like still over my head. But even in English, you know, a lot of us are conveying ideas. Maybe we don't know uh, grammar too well or, you know, we've forgotten it if we're writing things out or we're saying things. And for the most part, you know, when we can't convey our ideas real well, it's it's not a big deal, and then sometimes it makes for uh, pretty humorous uh, misinterpretations or misunderstandings. If you know, if if it's something that's just like a harmless misunderstanding, that's one thing. But if God is communicating to us, and we're not getting the the definition of His words right. And if we're not seeing the rules, because what God uses is words and sentences and paragraphs and books. And in fact, that's his book. That's the one here at the bottom. All right, okay, here we go. Here's the Bible. So, and this is one seamless whole thought from God to us. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it makes a perfect seamless revelation of really the drama of history, and as we'll continue to see today, the kingdom to come. Uh, and, you know, so we have two parties trying to communicate with each other. If we don't get the language right, if we don't get the sentence structures right, and the books right, and actually the whole theme of the Bible right, then we're going to misinterpret what God is saying to us. 
And that can cause some very serious errors uh, to the point where the gospel can be wrong. And if the gospel's wrong, people's lives are at stake. <clears throat> so, for instance, this happens very often. This was uh, someone posted on Facebook, I think, or his Twitter. Quote, I don't understand why so many people say that the Mona Lisa was Leonardo da Vinci's best work. I really liked his role in Titanic. That's a, that's a real quote. I looked, I looked it up today. Um, so what is that? Well, that's a miscommunication of a name. It's not Leonardo DiCaprio. It's Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. And or, this is another true story. An Oriental family moved to the U.S. One of their children was an 11-year-old boy who was just learning English. His first day at school, in a United States school, he goes to school, and his teacher asks him in front of the whole class, where, we, where was he born? And the little boy, confused, starts pointing to his arms and his legs, and he says, here, 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 and here, and he points to his legs. And after a while, trying to unravel what he was doing, he thought she said the word bone instead of born. Where were you bone? And he says, here, 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 here. It made me think that this is a very true, real one that I experienced. Uh, one morning, I used to work at Duracell in their uh, analytical laboratory in the Duracell Research and Development Building in uh, Needham, Massachusetts, many years ago, a lifetime ago. And I walk in in the morning, and here's Ann Sung. Now, Ann Sung is from China. She's English is second language, has a thick uh, Chinese accent. And she's very stressed, and she's running up and down a lab bench, and she's looking, obviously looking for something. And I said, Ann, what's wrong? And she's like, she shakes her head, and she says, I think I have a button loose. A button loose. So I'm like, oh. I'm like, okay. And we, we uh, Duracell issued us all lab coats that were buttoned up in the front. So I'm looking all over for a button. I'm looking all over, and then someone else comes in. I forgot, I think, uh, forget who it was, but he comes in, and he's like, what are you guys doing? I said, we're looking for Ann's button. And Ann stops, and she goes, no. I, I, what do you mean? I said, you, you said you lost the button. She said, I didn't say that. She was trying to say the phrase, I think I have a screw loose. <laughs> True story. I have a button loose. Yeah, she was doing something that she couldn't, uh, something wasn't working and she couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I think I have a button loose. We're like, oh, okay, well, we'll find it for you. Yeah, Ann Sung. I wonder where she is today. She was a sweetheart. Um, not so innocent is when the establishment, and this happens over and over throughout cultures, where the elite try to change the language and meaning of words. In our society, words like equality, equity, republic, democracy, these are important words, and they've tried to change the meaning of them. And they hammer the public through the media with different um, um, meanings to words. And trying to change language so that we can't really communicate. Don't forget, Satan's behind all of this. The most dangerous is when it's the language of the gospel, the language of the scripture. 
If you think God said, I got a button loose, when he said, I got a screw loose, then you're going to misinterpret a passage. And you know what I mean. It's important. And so today we look at a city that is to come. What does that mean when God says, we can't find a city here that's our home, but yet there is a city to come? What does God mean when he, call, when he references that Jesus will be revealed from heaven? What does that mean? And, you know, we will think maybe rapture or second coming, which is fine. But what does he really mean about the second coming of Christ? What does coming mean in that instance? God uses words and grammar to describe things. And today we're going to look at a set number of words that God uses to describe the city that is to come. And if we don't know what those words mean, then we don't, we don't long for the city like we should. And so it's very important. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 8. And we'll open up in prayer and be thankful. Let's be thankful to God for his word that's going to reveal to us today the world to come. Our context is the second coming of Christ. And so with that coming, uh, that longing for that coming, we're going to continue to uh, improve our understanding of that and why we should long for it and how we can long for it and at the same time not be absent in this world, meaning that we are a light to the world. And so with these things in mind, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you and you alone, Father, have the truth. You are true. You are faithful. And your revealed truth is in your scripture. Being there, Father, we understand that we can go to it. Uh, When we don't understand something or we have misinterpreted something, we know that through your spirit that we will come to understand if we are humble students. Not arrogant, prideful people, Christians who can be arrogant and prideful and think they know it all and want to prove to people that they know it all. But we, Father, want to approach you as your humble children, seeking instruction, knowing that there are always something that we have not gotten right. There is always something that we do not yet know. And so we humbly approach you for wisdom and that we may glory in that wisdom and relax and be excited about the truth. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our hearts would be enlightened by the words we'll see today. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So because of the imminent return of our Lord, we live in a time of a consistent hope. Imminent, yes. Uh, we're going to see that very soon. I know I keep promising that, but we will. Uh, and we're going to see this imminency, which we uh, most Well, not most, but enough interpret as the rapture. I don't know how many people interpret it as the rapture. Uh, I've been thoroughly exposed to those who don't think there is a rapture, and we'll deal with that. But um, what is true, even of those who don't believe in a rapture, they can't get around the fact that it's imminent. Because it's multiple scriptures. It's not just one or two or even ten. It's multiple uh, scriptures that it's very clear that the Lord could return at any moment and we're to look for that. All the early church fathers, we have record of their writing, all of them looked for the imminent return 
of the Lord, and they wrote about that. But uh, <clears throat> but there's also the conflict that comes with that are all the signs that are given to us that will come before he comes. And so for us dispensationalists, we've separated into two comings, a rapture and a second coming. And we'll look at, there's issues with that scripturally. Uh, and we'll look at that, and then we can all make up our minds. And I'm, as, as far as I'm concerned, at least what's coming to, upon me as I look more into it, is the fact that I know it's imminent, and I know there are signs before the second coming, and it's kind of like that we're saved by faith, and it's our own free will, and we're also called by God before the foundation of the world, and I don't know how those two things go together. And I don't know how the imminency and the signs go together. And, and so I, I'm a rapture guy, but <clears throat> and there's, you know, scripturally there's issues with it. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where it's in, God is so smart and in control that it's, it's in his hands. If God says there's signs before I send my son and it's imminent when he comes, you're not waiting for any signs, we just have to say to God, you know, I, we think it's going to happen this way, but we can't say 100%. And then start telling you how you're going to run your future. And that's what happens with believers. Is that they, they think they know something. And then they fill in all the gaps that God hasn't filled in. And then they start bossing God around about how he's supposed to do things. I, I stay out of that arena. Christ is coming at any moment. And that's how we are to live. And then there's the second coming of where there's signs. And, uh, and there's the tribulational period, of course, too, which has those signs in it. So um, the, the, the greater question, rather than predicting the future, is how my longing for the future affects me now. And that is, more, that is the most important thing, is how my future outside of this world you know, for most of Christians, they've all died before the coming of Christ anyway. They've all died before the rapture anyway. So what we're looking towards is there's a life that we have to live in time, and that's going to end. Because none of us, as we saw on Sunday, are destined for this world. We're not destined for it. We're meant to get weaker physically, mentally, and die and we're to leave this world because we're not destined for it our victory is in another world in another city and so we you know and so what this touches upon which is so important for us is why we should live the way that we do and we will see that you know that why do we live the way that we should and that is more important than knowing it's actually you have to know how you should live, but it's the why you should live that way is more important further still than knowing what you should do because there's people who know what they should do and never do it or hardly ever do it. And to them, that's a sin, of, that's a sin that is not in, of ignorance but of cognizant. They've cognizantly, that's not a word, they know how to live <laughs> the way, they know what they should do and they don't do it. Jesus taught on this, didn't he? You know what to do and you don't do it. You know what not to do and you do it. 
And therefore, to you, you know good, but you do evil. And believers do this. And so what's, what's very important for us is to know why. Because in why comes the motivation. And God will help you see this if you're humble enough to look and to see. God will help you see it. He's going to show you what's important. And once you grab hold of what is important and you see its importance, He's going to show you how you could lose it. Not your eternity. I don't mean that. I mean this. If you see the importance of your spiritual life, and you long for it, then God's going to very openly reveal to you how you can lose the experience of that spiritual life by you know, playing games with the plan of God and trying to live in two worlds. Try to shake hands with two masters. You can't, can't try and bow to two masters. You can't do it. And he's going to reveal to you, look, you're going to lose one. Can't, you, you will serve the one and neglect the other. That's what the Lord said. So, Uh, Because of the imminent return of our Lord, we live in time with a consistent hope of our true home, that is to come. In Hebrews, it's a city. How should we live? The important question. Beyond that, we need to know how we should live. But due to the need to execute that way, why should we live that way? And that's why we're in Romans 12. Romans 8, sorry. Romans 8, 12 through 13 we have the way that we should live. Let's read that. Romans 8:12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we have living by the Spirit and living by the flesh. Right? This very simplified part I'm taking here. I mean, we could start really back in Romans 5 to get this, really maybe back in Romans 3. (laughs) But, you know, to simplify for the sake of time, you know, there's a way in which we all should be. Now, here comes the why. We are are to walk by means of the Spirit. That is spiritual living. According to the will of God, the holiness of God, we are to live blameless and holy. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Right? That's a flat-out statement. This is not Paul commenting on the filling of the Spirit or the concept of walking by means of the Spirit. What he's saying here is, look, if you're a son of God, you're led by the Spirit. <clears throat> For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. And that is reference to two things, both the Mosaic Law, which makes you a slave to sin, which is Romans chapter 8, uh, chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, and, or actually, one, two, and three, but uh, we, and also the slavery to the flesh, which is Romans chapter seven. So you haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, so we're supernaturally convinced of this. And the children, and if children, heirs also. We're supernaturally convinced of our inheritance, which is to come in the future. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. Paul hints here of two inheritances 
and one of which is if we do suffer with Christ, there's an added inheritance of living in His way and experiencing His way and understanding further the the life that He lived in the presence of the Father and in fellowship with the Father. And this you can only experience in time because there's no suffering in heaven. And so this adds a further, and the Holy Spirit convinces us of this. So by this convincing, we understand that we're not trying, we don't want to try and avoid the suffering. We're not rushing headlong into it either. You know, that's asceticism. Like we're going to put suffering on ourselves so we can say, look, God, how great we are, and even say to ourselves how great we are. In the end there, your motivation is yourself. Always has been with asceticism. But when it, when it comes to the suffering that here would be terrible, not only painful, but unjust, you know, I would truly be a victim. And you know, to handle it properly, I wouldn't be complaining that I'm handling it with grace like our Lord did. And if we do that, see, the Spirit convinces us how important it is. Because we're going to come into an understanding of Jesus Christ our Lord, which is our life, or who is our life. So that's the why. And as we'll see in our next passage, that inheritance is linked to a city. And in our main passage, that city and that inheritance is linked to a second coming of the Lord. And now comes the future in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that is the glory of the Lord. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The earth, that's the earth. That's the whole creation longs for it. And that revelation of the sons of God is the revelation of the Lord in our main passage in 2 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, he comes with his holy ones, with his saints and his angels. The whole creation longs for that day, as do we. For the creation, now he's speaking about now, for the creation was subjected to futility. This is a Greek word, mateotes. It means vanity or emptiness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And when Christ subjects something, it means he rules. Just like we talked about on Sunday. He sits at the right hand of God ruling now. And he will ultimately rule physically when he returns. So, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Now, this hope has to refer to the one who subjected it in the sentence. That's the rules of this book. (laughs) Right? That's what we need those rules so we could say, well, whose hope is in view here? The hope is Christ. And this, in this way, you know that this biblical hope is not a, geez, I wish this works out. Can you imagine Christ saying, all right, I'm going to subject the world to futility, and man, I hope this works. And it's like I'm rolling the dice here, right? No. Hope means he knows. His hope is his longing for the culmination of human history, which he will bring about. He longs for this. He even said it to his disciples. And he said, oh, how long am I going to... It's one of those instances where he says, how long am I going to be with this generation? And he said, I long for the day when this has been finalized. But until that day, 
What do we have? Verse 20 again. Subject was created, subjected to futility. Futility means vanity. The kingdoms of men, the kingdoms right now, our kingdoms in Washington, right? The, there's a reason why it got the nickname the swamp, right? It's, you know, it's a kingdom of what? Vanity. People are getting powerful. People are getting money. People are losing money. People are losing their power. People, you know, all this stuff is going on. To what end? Somebody's going to say, I have all the money. Good for you. What do you have? Like the rich man who had too much money, so he tore down his barns and built bigger ones. And then he died. Right? Today your soul is required of you. What did you really earn? Futility. It's empty. Vanity. Right? It's the book of Ecclesiastes as well in the Old Testament. Vanity of vanity. All is vanity. So the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, this is Christ's future, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's our future. Our glory. Now, the glory of the children of God, this is spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's Christ being glorified in us. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we're the first to have the Spirit indwelling us in the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, looking to the new city, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? That's, that's an interesting question because now that I read that, I think, you know, Christ is the one who hopes for what he's already seen. Because he sees the end from the beginning. But perhaps in his humanity, uh, that is a different application. But anyway, verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, right? Perseverance in the kingdom of vanity, in the kingdom of futility of verse 20, we persevere because we wait eagerly for the kingdom to come. Is it any? We see the brilliance in Jesus telling us, pray, your kingdom come. Are we commanding God to bring His kingdom in our timing? No. We're longing for it. Every day when we pray that, we're longing for that kingdom. It's pushed upon our minds. That's the reason I pray it before I get out of bed every morning. Because before I start handling the things in this kingdom, I want to make sure I long for the next. So hope is currently and joyously living in the manner of what the world does not yet see. Just like Jesus did. You know, when the just think of all the times and that there's probably a, a thousand more times that we don't know because the gospels don't give us his entire life. But you know, when the disciples saw him not eating, they said, Who did Jesus get in did do you have any food? And he said, I have bread to eat that you don't know. 
Right? He sees things that they didn't see. When they were going to leave him all alone in the upper room, he said, you're all going to leave me alone. But I'm not alone, he said, because I see things that you don't see. He told them to pray with him in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they couldn't. They were too sleepy. They fell asleep. Why? Because they couldn't see what he could see. But now, as the church age has progressed into the age of where the children of God are now actually indwelt by God and have the Spirit and the completed, it's completely done, the Scripture, now we can see. We have eyes to see. And we are to see that what we can't see. We are to see that what the world can't see. And when you and I find ourselves getting stressed out about life here, we're looking at the wrong kingdom. When we start to see ourselves getting stressed out because those people over there are doing that. Does that have anything to do with you? No, but it makes me mad. (laughs) You're looking at this world. You know, when we pray a Lord's Prayer, if you pray it every morning, I highly recommend it. If you pray anything in the morning, I highly recommend it because it takes minutes (laughs) and it will set your mind on the right path immediately. But also, as Paul wrote in Colossians 3, keep seeking the things above where Christ is hid in heavenly places, where your life is hid with Christ. When He is revealed, you will be revealed with Him in glory. Don't seek the things of the earth. We get our minds on this world and the people who are in it. There are Christians who are stuck. Their minds are stuck in this world. It's not for us to get mad at them. Or to judge them even. But to find ways in which we can joyously, find ways in which we can stress-free, Find ways in which we can help them to see. Pray about it. Think about it. Contemplate it. How can I help so-and-so see? And in all ways, always, live in hope. Because even when you're not even thinking about what they see, they may be seeing you live through your life with hope and joy and peace in this crazy world. Now, what does the world not see? Go to Hebrews 13. We could go to many passages to answer that question. Look at Hebrews 13, 14. And then after, just in a second here, we're going to go back to verse 1 and see it in context. Hebrews 13, 14. For here... You know, on this earth. Uh, And in fact, um, the writer to Hebrews, this writer of this book, this reference to here is a particular reference to Jerusalem. Because the context of the book is writing to Christian Jews who are being tempted and some have gone back to temple worship because of the pressure of their family and their neighbors. So you take that in contrast to the Thessalonians who are also under pressure from their family and neighbors, not to go back to Judaism, but to go back to paganism. 
and they stood their ground, and that's why Paul and Paul compliments them for it, and in fact brags about them to other churches. These Christian Jews in and around Jerusalem were so pressured by other Jews and persecuted by other Jews to go back to living under the Mosaic Law that many of them did. And, you know, that, that's what the whole book is about. The whole book is about that we're no longer under the law and that someone greater than Moses had come and set us free. So, but, so in verse 14... For here, and for us we could just say the whole earth, any, any kingdom here. For here we do not have a lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer references Abraham, who moved around in tents, never really lived in a city. And the writer says he was looking to a city that is made without hands. You know, the city of God. <clears throat> so every believer, right, this brings upon us a burden. A burden that we can bear. It's a burden of a soul that constantly faces a longing for something to come, while in the meantime has to live in the manner of that which is to come in a world that does not acknowledge it, see it, and in fact, in many cases, hates it. This is the very idea of a city of God with Jesus Christ as Lord where He and He alone is glorified and nobody else. We share in His glory. The arrogance, pride of fallen man loathes that concept. Like the arrogance and pride of man says, we make utopia here on earth. We do it. We have the brains. We have the ability. And, and of course, the people who think this are sure that only they do, and the rest of the population doesn't. And so to the point where they're even willing to kill off, murder, put in gulags, plenty of people in the population who don't seem to get it the way that they do. That has always been happening. So now we want to look at the context of it. We long for the city which was, is to come. Right? Longing we seek, it says. That's hope. It's not we seek and, geez, I hope we find it. It's not Indiana Jones looking for the lost city or with the next thing he's looking for. Right? In, in movie number 12, right? That's because they get worse as time goes on. But, uh, you know, this is a city that we know we're going to be in. So we're not seeking it to actually find it. Our Lord has made it. We're seeking it in, to, in the way of living in the manner of its, of its citizenry. But until then, we live in this world with the, in view of the new. And why do we do that? We live for the city that is to come because of what it is. And uh, this is brilliant, the way that God has done this. And it's the only way that it can be done, in my opinion. And I, I would say, obviously, in God's opinion, because this is how he presents it. What motivates the world 
What even motivates Indiana Jones to find the hidden thing? It's just plain curiosity. I mean, even if that's the case, he's finding it for himself. Now, what is the motivation? What are people general are at bottom? What are people motivated by? It's the root of all evil. Is the love of money. The world is motivated by the love of money. You say people are motivated by power. Yeah, but you can't have it without money. People are motivated by prestige. You can't really have it without money. So it's the love of money. It's the love of self. The end days were predicted to be. They'll be lovers of self and lovers of money. Now, unfortunately and weirdly, the church got motivated by money. Especially in um, the third and fourth century where the Roman church got powerful because finally Christianity was accepted and actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And, and when that happened and the church was able to build itself, it became powerful, it became rich, and it became influential, which in many cases was used for good. I'm not saying everybody in it was bad. But in other cases, it was used to say, well, look, we don't need a kingdom of God. We've got a kingdom of our own right here. And we have wealth, we have power, we have influence. They even had an army. And, you know, why do, we, why do we need, why do we long for the Lord to come back? When Christians are being persecuted and they had nothing and they were poor, it's very easy to long for a future world. But when you're comfortable and you're rich and you have influence, yeah, you have power, the church had amazing power. There was a this Gregory the Seventh was a pope who who demanded and he did it the Holy Roman Emperor forget which one it was is Edward something came to the pope in his bare feet in the snow I'm not kidding bare feet in the snow and bowed down and asked for forgiveness in front of that man Hildebrand was his original name he was Gregory the Seventh and he granted. You know, you could see with his big fat ring, he probably placed it on his head and he granted him forgiveness. And by that, the church, that was a huge step for the church to gain power over kingdoms. The Pope was in Rome. He's not even in that guy's territory. But they gained power. Why would God dangle in front of us the same reward that the world offers? Does that make any sense? If the true reward of the world is money and power and influence, why would God give us the same thing? It makes no sense at all. However, God does promise reward. And the reward is himself. That's it. That's why I make this point. Why do we long for this kingdom? Because of what it is. And here's what it is. This is just... One fast reference, as Paul says in Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is what? And here comes a list of nouns, really adjectives, that are describing this city, 
this kingdom of which the returning Lord is going to bring to the earth. And he's saying, look, look at the bottom. Set your mind. Dwell. The Greek word means just that. Dwell. Think on it. Dwell on these things. And here are the things. And it's in Greek, this really stands out because he uses the word true. You see whatever is, whatever is, whatever is, whatever is. In Greek, it's one word, usa. And usa means as much as, as many as, or something like that. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Honorable means worthy of respect. Whatever is right. Uh, DK, which is a word that also means just. Whatever is pure, which is a word that means holy. Whatever is lovely, which is a word that means delightful as well. Whatever is of good repute, which is a word that means commendable. If there is any excellence, which is the word for virtue or rete. And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. No, not the things of the earth. Right? So you can match this with Colossians 3. Seeking the things above where my life is hid with Christ, not on the things of the earth. Is the earth longing for these things? Well, it depends on the definition of the word, doesn't it? Getting back to the lexicon or the dictionary. What does the world call true? Oh, man, that's a loaded question, isn't it? What is true? Anything on the news? <laughs> Pretty much Nothing. You know, and it, but even if it is true, it's skewed for what? Advertising. Money. Money. Right? This whole thing that went down with Tucker Carlson, right? The guy spoke his mind. You know, it, I don't, I'm not going to say that he was true all the time. I don't know if he was. I don't know all that what he, he claimed to know. I'm not privy for that. My job is to know the Scripture and know the Lord. I don't know that stuff. But, you know... It, why did they keep him as long as they did? He was a moneymaker. That's the same is true with what about Bud Light? Why did they? Why are they like scrambling to say no, no, we don't like trans? Well, they can't say that, right? We're not pro transgender and all that because people stop buying their beer. That's it. Money. That's what's true. Is <laughs> how much money you have. But you see, when God says something's true, that word now is different. And this city is true. So in this world <clears throat> that you and I are sojourning in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says we're aliens here. Um, and... Uh, Paul in Philippians 3, we're citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. Paul in Colossians 3, we seek our life is hidden with Christ in heavenly places, not here. But we have to sojourn as aliens, as ambassadors. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're ambassadors for Christ. And these are the things we live in and walk in and live for because when Christ comes back and is revealed and we're revealed with them, these things are forced upon the earth. They're forced upon mankind. I'm talking about second coming, not after the tribulation. They're forced upon mankind. Say, well, wait, wait, how could they be forced? 
because he rules with a rod of iron. There's going to be plenty of people during the millennial reign of Christ who want to rebel. They're not going to be allowed to. There's going to be plenty of people who want to rule. Sorry. They're not going to be allowed to. Satan won't be here. He'll be locked up in the abyss. And all the knuckleheads that are deceiving with him, I mean angels, fallen angels. But that's what's going to be here. Now, in the minds of people, that won't, because there's going to be unbelievers here during that age. That's going to be a different kind of a time for sure. But there are going to be people here within their own hearts. They're not true. Within their own minds, they're not just. But there will be justice, and it will be pure. And if anybody breaks his law, they'll be dealt with immediately. Sounds pretty awesome or delightful. That's what we're looking for. And herein lies the challenge. If it's difficult to be true and holy and yourself lovely, uh, to be virtuous because the flesh is tempting you, or the flesh is tempting you, or people are tempting you, or the world's bearing down on you, it's harder to be virtuous. And it's then that we have to gird ourselves up and really go for it. In fact, we desire so much to live in the new kingdom, the new city, in the way of the new kingdom and the new city, that even when it is difficult, we revel it. Do we revel the difficulty? No, we'd rather it not be. Again, that's asceticism. But even in the hard times, we say, well, look, now's the time where I can be virtuous when it's difficult. That's what our Lord did. It's, it's, it's a time where I can see what I'm made of. And God brings in those tests. And in some lesson some weeks ago, I used the analogy that those tests and those trials are like personal trainers. Right? Because if you just train yourself, you'll go, per, you'll go to, well, where it depends on your mental ability. But if you're going to train yourself physically to do something at the level that is, say, Olympian or something like that, you have to be able to train your body while it's in pain and maintain that pain to build that endurance. And for most of us, we'll maintain the pain part for as brief as possible. And then we'll say, I need a breather. I'm at my max. But if you have a trainer who's there like really pushing you, they'll get you to go that little more. In fact, uh, the Bible uses that analogy itself. When we, you know, when Paul says, I beat my body. I box, not beating the air. I run to win the race. He uses the, and you know, the Greeks, the Greek society, that the whole Roman world was very Greekified. Uh, the games were a huge thing. And they had gymnasiums where they trained them. And they, they trained them naked. The, all the, the reason why they trained them naked is because so they could, you know, see how much if you're hiding any fat. 
know, or if you had any defects. You know, the Greeks were also known for their homosexuality, too, so I don't know. But, but anyway, you know, that what we understand from history is that the, the trainers wanted to see you train naked so that they could see if you were, you know, you weren't eating right or something like that, stuff that you could hide under clothes. All right, so um, I, I didn't mean to transition to exercising naked men in this, in this message, so let's go back to the city that is to come. Uh, <clears throat> if I'm dwelling in my soul upon the world that I'm in, now, in contrast to these words, this world is base, it's drab, it's definitely unjust, it's foul, it's depressing. And I'm really, we're referencing the people in it. The world itself, even in its fallen state, is beautiful. It truly is. I, it may, I, I love when I, I did that book about Apollo and one of the things the astronauts could not get over was how the Earth looked from space. And all this blackness, and of course the moon is gray and black, and, and here's this, it like they said it stands out like a jewel, blue and white and brown, and, and there's life, you know. It, in the whole universe, the Earth is the place of life. This one little speck of rock in an endless, vast ocean of nothing. And here is life. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then we have the people. The whole problem with the world, <laughs> the people in it. They make it base, drab, unjust, foul, depressing, evil, lustful. If we're dwelling and thinking on that, then we're going to become like it. It's almost like a cancer. It infects us. It infects our mind. That's why I'd say little is possible in the news. That's you know that's a recommendation. You don't. The pastor doesn't tell you what to do. Um, but you know the more time you spend looking at that which is foul, the more it's going to affect you. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it's either, da I don't think it was, jo was it Josh or David? I think it was David who said, I'll put no unclean thing before my eyes. <clears throat> when we think upon the new world, that is life and peace. And so look at, go back to Hebrews 13.1. Let love of the brethren continue. Now, he's going to end this paragraph with the city that is to come. So keep that in mind. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, you know, I said I'd talk about it. i got like a few minutes left here. But the word angels can also mean in Greek, it's angelos. It can mean angel. It can also mean messenger. So it might not be angels. If you prefer to keep it as angels, that's all. That's your right completely. So, but what the point is, don't neglect to show hospitality. What are we talking about? Love of the brethren. Verse 3, remember the prisoners, because some of them were so persecuted, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in one body. Right? Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Again, this is about agape love. 
Verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. I want more. No, you don't. (laughs) All right, well, maybe you do, but you shouldn't. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. How often is this verse quoted out of context, which is fine. It's the most wonderful promise. It's probably the easiest one to remember. But the context is be content with what you have. God is saying you have me. Always. So what do you have now? I mean, you're the richest person in the world if you have God with you all the time. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now, here's why I chose this verse for today. Uh, Chris and I went to change our auto insurance. All auto insurance in Oregon, maybe you've experienced it and seen it, all went up. And we found out why from the insurance agent. There's more accidents and uh, repairs are far more expensive. So are car parts. So all rates went up. So we went to insurance agent to change. Now, I'm sitting there with Chris talking to this nice young lady. And uh, Chris says, what's Hebrews 13.5? And I'm like, what? And tattooed on the girl's arm right across her forearm was Hebrews 13.5. And, of course, I got it wrong. I was like, I think it's blah, blah, blah. And this girl, she quoted it perfectly. an insurance agent. (laughs) She quoted it perfectly. She said, Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so immediately, I went and read this passage, and then I started reading the whole chapter. And I'm like, lo and behold, there's the coming of the Lord yet again. It's everywhere. So let's get to it. You see, this is, in this world, there's the love of money. In the next, there's God. So, getting back here, why do we long for this city? Because of what it is. It's God. And you have Him now, even though we're not there yet. So, you and I can live... In those, because those are the descriptions of the city. And so we can, verse 6, it continues. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's David. Psalm 51, I think it is. 51 or 55. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Don't forget the pastor. (laughs) There's a plug for the pastor. Yay. And considering the result of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is God. For sorry, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, uh, which is the false teaching of legalism, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. And this is probably a reference to the Lord's table, of which the unbeliever cannot eat. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go outside to him, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Now, before I read verse 14 and finish, it may seem odd, just us reading this paragraph, that he would mention a sin offering which is burned outside the camp. But in the context of the whole book, it makes perfect sense. Because this context is about the Israel, oh, sorry, Jewish believers, Jewish Christians in the early church being drawn back to the Mosaic Law and the temple cult services and to offerings. And the sin offering, here's what they did with the sin offering. They killed the animal drained all its blood, poured the blood at the base of the altar. Before they did that, they sprinkled some in front of the Holy of Holy Curtain. And then they spilled the rest of the blood at the altar. They took, they killed, oh, the animal's already dead. <laughs> no blood. So, and then they, they, they took the animal, or really butchered the animal, and took the kidneys and the liver and all the fat that was inside, and they burned that on the altar. And then they take the whole rest of it, the hide, the head, and all the flesh, they take it outside the tabernacle, outside the camp, and they burn the entire thing. That's the sin offering. It's different from the burnt offering. That's the sin offering. And what it depicted was the blood and the fat and the innards all burnt on the altar was the redemption of mankind. Remember, it's a sin offering. So the animal outside the camp, this is a picture of the fact that sin would be cast as far as the east is from the west. So the redemption of our sin and the fact that in this city to come, sin is no more. Ever, ever, ever again. Long gone. And so the writer of Hebrews uses the sin offering in a way actually nobody ever had before. That image. And that image is the image of the new city. So he says, and what's in the city is the tabernacle. That's where these people are being drawn to, uh, these Christians. We're being drawn into a world. The world wants us to join it. Our flesh wants to join it. We're being drawn back, not to the temple, but to other things. And we, so he says, go outside the camp, which is what? Outside the world and bear his reproach. Because when Jesus was outside of the norm, they persecuted him. When we're outside the world in lifestyle, we're persecuted. But we're in the world living this life for which we'll be persecuted. And that is the life of the city to come. And when it comes, those who persecute us are going to be justly repaid. And we're going to get relief. That's 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, 7, 8, and 9. They're going to be judged. We're going to get relief. And we're going to see the glory of the Lord within ourselves like we've never seen it before when He returns. And we have this all in mind as we're living out this life in the old world. 
And so he so well does this in verse 14. When you find yourself starting to look around, you say, why am I so uncomfortable all of a sudden in my thoughts? Why am I stressed? Why am I worried? It's because here, look at verse 14, for here you don't have a lasting city. When you got your mind and I got my mind on people and things and circumstances and this and that and the other thing and the news and whatever, I started looking around for a home here. And when you're not at home, you're uncomfortable, you're stressed, you're worried, and so on. And you don't have a home here. That's what he says. Outside the camp. So he says, we're seeking a city which is to come. That's our home. Amen to that. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you so much for the care which you have throughout your word so clearly, plainly conveyed your truth in passage after passage concerning our future, our present, our past. We thank you, Father, for the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who bore our reproach who paid for our sins, by His stripes were healed. And by Him and Him alone have we been forgiven. Thank You for casting our sins as, east as, as far as the east is from the west so that we may long and look for You and walk with You now. May we keep that city in our hearts, the one that is to come, and live in its virtue while we're in this old one. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.